Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Well, good morning. Very exciting morning. Great to see baptisms. I love to see baptisms. Okay, brilliant. And, and you know, in four weeks' time, we will have baptisms again. And at some point, I got to teach on baptism, John, because there's more than what you think. It's more than what you think going on, because the church has historically taught it as a sacrament. And so at some point, we'll, we'll unpack the fullness of baptism, and I'm looking forward to doing that at some point, okay? And then I was talking to Mitch over there, because there's a song that, I, I love the song that Crystal sang about Beautiful Name, okay? It's one of my favorite songs, okay? And then I'm listening to it, and I'm looking at it, and thinking, okay, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down, right? And it sounds wonderful, right? But it's bad theology, because it was never about heaven. It was always about earth. He didn't want heaven without, he didn't want earth without him being here. We kicked him out. And he wants to see the earth rise and the kingdom of God come. And so, it's now just ruined my song, okay? I wish my, my, my mind has to slow down sometimes, okay? But, um, I mean, I'll still enjoy the song because there's great sentiment in the song, but it never was about heaven. It was always about here and this becoming the kingdom of God where he will reign and rule forever. So, uh, yeah, mama, you don't want to sit down there, do you? It must be, the, must be the refresher drink, Mitch, that I drank this morning, okay? But just, oh, my mind's so full with baptisms and theology. And, uh, and then I'm very excited to announce that we've added to our youth, earn, our youth intern team. And SVCC's very own Ali Calhoun has joined the youth team. And uh, excited to have Ali come alongside Doreen and Joel and they continue to see more young people coming to junior high and high school, the foundations program. And if you see them, either Doreen or Joel or Ali now, encourage them, join with them, volunteer, and pray for them. Pray for them as they lead and pray for the young people who attend. And then pray for the hundreds of young people in Lamore who have still got to come and explore faith and explore being human and explore Jesus Christ. So... Uh, Excited to see what's going to happen in the next many months as Ali joins with Doreen and Joel and they lead the youth ministry. So, all right, this is preach number two in a series that we called Consumed. What's sucking the life out of you? And we started this on January 12th, and last week you had Manny. I love Manny, okay? And uh, we highlighted that in January 12th, we highlighted that, that idols the things that we end up worshiping that don't love us but enslave us, uh, they tend to be things that we love. Like we, we talked about how we take a good thing and we make it a supreme thing and we deify them and they consume us. So uh, like if you were here on January 12th, we talked a little bit about our little hells that we live in and how we try to escape from them. And like maybe for you, a hell might be that you would be single for all your life. And so your life becomes consumed in searching for a savior who will marry you, who will be your partner. And that's all that you become is seeking after that. Or maybe for you, a local hell would be that you would uh, uh, be a failure 
And so you give your entire life to making sure that you're successful. And everything that comes along that can help you with that, you jump on it like 200%. And it might be a job opportunity. It might be making money scheme. It might be the trimmings of success that you have to have, the right car, the right house, the right... Uh, oh, you, you still claim to follow Jesus, but you're consumed about being successful. And I see, that in a, I see that in so many churches that I go to where people are just tagging on Jesus. And he's tagged on, but the main thing is being successful. Or, or maybe it's being a great parent. And so you bow down to the idol of worshiping your children and giving them everything that they ever dreamed of. Uh, and you do it because you want to win their admiration. You want them to like you. They want them to love you. But in so doing, it consumes you. And hear me right, having a partner and being successful and being a great parent are all good things. But this is how our soul works. This is how our heart works. We are idol factories, I-D-O-L, idol factories. And we wake up one day and we discover that we have become enslaved to what was otherwise good, but it's now consuming us. So today, <laughs> You're going to not like this one, okay? We dig a little deeper into one of the most common idols that we sacrifice so much of our lives to. Are you ready? Are you ready? Or is your life too busy and you just want this service over so you can go and do the things you've got to get done? Because if that's the case, this morning is for you. Because we're going to talk about bowing down to the idol of busyness. I love my job. Like Monday morning is a good morning for me. Some pastors take Mondays off. In fact, some pastors just work on Sundays, but you know, many of them just take one, and they normally take Monday off. I never take, take Monday off. Never. I look forward to Monday. I get to my office desk, and well, that's good because I don't need to speak to anybody because my office is in my house. And uh, I close my door and I sit at my desk and I genuinely enjoy looking at all that has to be accomplished in this week. And I get to use the right side of my brain and creatively design some new initiatives or write a talk or expand a vision or brainstorm an idea and be creative. And I get to use the left side of my brain and manage budgets and staff and answer emails and strategize and plan for greater redemptive impact in my life and what I lead. I love my job. And this is not new. Like when I was a city banker, I loved my job then. I loved the suit, the tie, the briefcase. I had a commute in the train to go, the analyzing of balance sheets, the, the interviews with borrowers, the advising on debt management. I also loved the salary and the profit sharing and the bonuses. Did I mention the profit sharing and the bonuses? And the seven weeks paid vacation. And did I mention the seven weeks paid vacation? And I loved the job. Did I mention the bonuses? My first church job, no joking. I tried to negotiate bonuses based on the number of annual baptisms and new members. It didn't go down well. It did not go down well. I also tried negotiating bonuses based on giving shorter sermons. And they nearly bought that. But Now, I had some mean bosses. 
I had difficult clients. I had staff that shouted at me. I had parishioners, congregation members that still shout at me. I, I had Liz, who was crazily menopausal. That's, that's the worst, okay? I had Sam. He was an opinionated bigot. I had Mr. Cameron, who raged with anger if you got something wrong. I had Terry. He was always in a bad mood. And I was sent to bank offices that I didn't want to work at, and I had longer days than most because I've always, wherever I've worked, had long commutes. A funny incident to me, anyway. I remember one, one evening, Daniel, Daniel is our oldest son, and I asked him if, or, or he asked us, if we'd ever worked with people who were difficult, who were annoying people, who, like people you didn't want to be around and wish you could avoid. And, well, I'm kind of wondering, what, what, what school teacher or job colleague is he referring to? So I replied, sure, you know, lots of times, Danny, it's part of life. Who's the person in your life that's annoying you and difficult to get around? And, and he replied, well, it's Luke, my little brother, <laughs> you know? But I loved my banking job, and I was good at my job. Like, I knew, I know how to analyze a balance sheet. I, I was skilled at discerning a good lending opportunity. I know how to lead. I can make decisions. I can see the way forward. I can strategize well. I can hold the little details within the big details picture frame. As Marcus Buckingham teaches and writes, I've discovered my strengths, and I work to my strengths, and I hire, delegate for my weaknesses. I love my job. I don't do it to live, but as Dorothy Sayers said, it's the thing one lives to do. It's the fullest expression of my faculties. In doing my job, I find spiritual and mental and bodily satisfaction. I, I come alive when I have a vision to lead towards or a strategy to develop or a plan to outwork. I, when I get to read and study and think and then try to figure out how to communicate to a crowd some truth about God. That dear, I just, I just, I just like, I feel every cell in my body has been switched on. And then when I get to ask people to stand with the poor or the injustice and stand against it, and when I get to introduce people to friends who I have in slums around the world, and when I get to raise money to send to them, to empower them, and able to do greater things to reach them, oh, my soul and my heart sing, I was made for this. I love my job. I discovered in some reading for this, message. Do, do you know the first person in the Bible who was said to be filled with the Spirit of God? And it wasn't Adam or Noah or Abraham or Joseph or Moses or Elijah. It was a guy by the name Basilel. And Basilel was not a prophet. He was not a priest. He was not a king. He was not an apostle. He was a craftsman skilled in design. He had an eye for color and a flair for management. 
So when it came time to build a tabernacle for the people of Israel, he oversaw the job. And uh, it says in Exodus 31 that God filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. Bazalel became alive the way God wanted him to be alive when he did his job. I love my job. Maybe you do too. Like maybe you come alive when you walked into your office on a Monday morning. Or maybe you come alive when you have a pile of chores to do. Like my mother really liked cleaning. She always says, it's next to godliness, Gilbert. Or maybe you come alive when a meal has to be cooked for the entire family. Or like you're hosting a family gathering and you just... Your, your soul just sings when that moment comes. Or maybe you come alive when you lead a team. Or maybe you come alive in the classroom as you teach your second grader sentences and structures of sentences and fractions or, or British history and, and how we were an empire. Oh, sorry. Wrong country. You guys are still trying to be an empire. We were, okay? Maybe you come alive when you have to sell that product. Or maybe you come alive when you have to fix that engine. Or maybe you come alive when you have to supervise and lead your team. Research shows that the best moments of our lives don't come from leisure or pleasure. They don't involve sex or chocolate or both. And that surprised me. Like, maybe Google isn't always right, you know? But the best moments in our lives, research tells us, comes when we are totally immersed in a significant task that is challenging, yet matches up well to our highest abilities. I love my job. And I am most alive when I do my job and when I do it well. But, I am in danger, real danger, of being consumed by my job. I am in danger of taking this good thing and elevating it to a supreme thing, to the point where it becomes an idol in my life. I am in danger of the love I have for my jobs wrecking my life. And maybe you are too. This is always the problem of a good thing. It can consume you. And this thing, my job and my love for my job, has been an idol I've had to constantly try to tame. And and I have made a very clear and firm decision about this one. And the decision that I made, I know, is going to redefine who I am. And that scares me. Because I have always been about my job. And now I don't want to be about my job. You see, here's this good thing, my job. 
And here's my skills and my talents, God-given skills and talents. And, but sometimes to chase that alive feeling, to capture that meaning and fulfillment that my job and my career and my using of those talents provides me, sometimes this good thing is elevated to a supreme thing and I bow down to it. Huxley said we will be enslaved by something we love and that's what will kill us. Now, it doesn't normally begin by bowing down to a job. Normally, the way an idol works is it traps you or it tricks you. It comes in a side door. And for me, the side door is being busy. There's something kind of self-aggrandizing when somebody asks, how are you? And you reply, oh, I'm really busy. In our culture, we align being busy with being important. And we want to be viewed as important. The busier we are, the more important we must be. Do you ever notice how often when you speak to someone who's retired, they always say, but I'm busier now than before. It's almost as if we're embarrassed to say, yeah, I'm not that busy these days. Life's kind of slow. But here's the truth. As much as we complain about being busy and about having too much, not, not enough time in the day, about working 50, 60, 70 hours, here's the truth. We are drawn to keep ourselves busy because it makes us feel good. And subtly, the side door of self-promotion, of self-aggrandizement, of self-worship is opened, and I begin to bow down to the idol of busyness, and it is going to wreck my life. So, there's a story that Jesus shares about two of His friends. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. If you have a Bible, you can open it. I'm going to read the whole story, okay? Um, and it's the story of Mary and Martha. And I really don't like this story. Truth be told, you probably don't like it either. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what He said. But Martha was distracted with all the preparations she had to make, so she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part. It will not be taken away from her. That irritates me. I mean, at the surface level, this story is about making the right choice. There are other times that you can be busy and work and do there's a right time just to be. Be a worshiper, be a learner of Jesus, be a listener. But I'm an Enneagram number three, and I'm a type A. 
And maybe you're a type A or an Enneagram number three or seven or eight, and this just exasperates me. This whole nice time together wouldn't have happened without some planning, Jesus. Some busy work. And at one level, I'm irritated by it. Not only does Jesus fail to thank Martha for how busy she's been to make this happen, but he's applauding Mary, who's sitting doing nothing. (laughs) On another level, I can learn something powerful from this story because the real problem, and get ready for this one, the real problem wasn't the unfair division of the workload between Mary and Martha. The real problem was, excuse me, Mary was behaving as if she were a man. In the first century. Because this is fascinating, like in the first century Jewish culture, the house was divided into male space and female space. And Mary had crossed an invisible but very important cultural boundary within the house. The public room was where the men would meet. The kitchen and other quarters belonged to the woman, first century Jew. For a woman to settle down comfortably among the men was bordering on scandalous. To sit at the feet of a teacher was a distinctively male role. But Jesus, Jesus affirms her right to sit and learn. And so this story at a greater level is about the boundary-breaking call of Jesus. And he challenges the cultural norms, and he challenges here the the role of women in their society. And, oh, CVCC, CVS, CV, what are we, CVCC, are we CVS, what are we, CVCC, SVCC. My mind's ahead of me, okay? SVCC. Understand the role of Jesus, understand the role of woman through the actions and the eyes of Jesus. And I don't think you fully are yet. And that'll get me into trouble. Leave that one aside. That was a throwaway extra. But today, in a society, in a culture, where busyness defines us, am I willing to break that rule? Hmm. I remember, I remember speed reading a book (laughs) about the need to develop what the author called an unhurried life. (laughs) Something wrong with that picture, Gilbert, okay? And now there's apps to do it even quicker, okay? And it, it, it told me in the book that the best-selling shampoo in America, yeah, okay, I still use shampoo, okay, uh, they don't put marble tops on cheap furniture. No. But they told me that the best-selling shampoo in America is the shampoo that combines shampoo and conditioner in one step. It eliminates two minutes in the shower. Two minutes. Domino's Pizza. Domino's Pizza became number one pizza 
because the company promised to deliver in 30 minutes or less. And their CEO said, we don't sell pizzas, we sell delivery. We buy pizza, not on it being the best pizza, but being brought to us the quickest. You know, lousy pizza, but we got it fast. <laughs> we are a sick culture, folks, okay? I mean, don't you think there's something sick in a society that flocks to a type of food called fast food and not good food? We find ourselves as we approach a stoplight, and there are two lanes, and we figure out what lane will pull away the fastest, and we make for that lane, and we are disappointed with ourselves if we've chosen the wrong lane. Like, my manhood is threatened if I get in the slow lane. Or we're at the grocery store, and if we have a choice between two checkout lines, we check out how many people, we count how many items in their customer's cart, and we then join a line that we think is the fastest, and as we join that line, we are keeping track of the person who would have been in my spot in the other line, and if they beat me through the checkout, I leave disappointed with myself. We want their paper bags to rip as they go to their car. <laughs> Bowing down to the idol of busyness. And bowing down to the idol of busyness has us worshiping at the shrine of hurry. And Carol Jung, all truth is God's truth, Carol Jung said, hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. So, this hurry disease, this bowing down to the idol of business, this thing that is birthed out of our abilities to work and to do a great job, this busyness that hits us and sucks us in and takes this good thing and makes it a supreme thing through the side door of being important, this idol has symptoms that highlight to us the train wreck that we're in danger of becoming. Take the symptom that we define others and we define ourselves by what we do. We depersonalize our relationships. The first question we ask a new person, what is it you do? And often, as we ask that question, we are immediately calculating, do I earn more than them? Am I more qualified than them? Am I more important than them? And how many of us really don't know people or count as friends because our relations are centered on what we do and not who they really are? I mean, how many of us have ever said, well, they're a work colleague, they're not a friend? Why are they not a friend? You spend 40 hours of your week with them. Why are they not friends? Well, some of them I can understand, right? You know, sitting two rows in and… More than others, what about ourselves? Is our worth, is our value really defined by the jobs that we do? Are you not more than that? Three symptoms. Symptom number one, hurry, busyness, causes us to skim over people's lives and skim through our lives rather than living them. 
Symptom number two, busyness makes us become superficial. The speed that we live at, the focus of that one thing, our job, and we miss so much more of our world. Uh, Luke's Gospel chapter 8, you don't need to turn to it just now, okay? But Luke's Gospel chapter 8 has another fascinating story, and it's a story of uh, a man who comes to Jesus, and he asks him to heal his sick daughter. And so there's urgency. His daughter is home, sick. Jesus, would you come and just touch her, just help her, just heal her? She's close to death, and that word's in the text. And instead of hurrying away to help this man and his daughter who's close to death, he allows an old lady to interrupt him. And she touches the hem of his garment and he stops and he slows the whole thing down and he talks to this lady. And She's an old lady. She's going to die anyway. But there's a young girl who's, who's nearly at death. Go, Jesus, quickly and, and save the young girl. She's had her life, the old lady. And instead of hurrying away, Imagine the emotions of the father. Imagine the emotions of the dad. Come on, Jesus, come on. Hurry, get busy. Come on. But Jesus lives in the present, not the future. And in the present, he stops and he heals. And then, how much do we miss? Because our world is about the next thing, about tomorrow, about the next thing, about, you know, in 10 days' time. And we don't feel the present, and superficiality dominates. Symptom number three, we hit fatigue, particularly what we call sunset fatigue. Sunset fatigue, we arrive home at sunset, and those around us, our kids, our spouse, those who need our love the most, to whom we are most committed, they end up getting our leftovers. And to love, and to love Jesus, and to love our children, and to love our spouse, we must ruthlessly eradicate hurry from our lives. Uh, rooted. Okay, we got 22 groups. We want more, okay, guys? 111 of you guys? Come on, there should be more than that there, because rooted will help you. Rooted will help you deal with hurry. Rooted will help you re-look at what it is to be a spiritual being and what should come first and how to get that to the front. So go on, guys. Get online and sign up for Rooted, okay? And uh, there's another book for those of you who are going to do Rooted. There's another book which is on the screen just now, The Common Rule, okay? And it's a very good book, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. In fact, there's a chapter in it, uh, there's a chapter in it about one hour with your phone off. <laughs> it's like... And I made a commitment to this year have one day without my phone. I haven't done that commitment yet. But there's 365 days, so I'll find one day when I don't need to have my phone. Uh, there's another habit about one hour of conversation with a friend, like not through text, just like actually a conversation. A very helpful book, okay? The Common Rule that won a merit award recently amongst the Christian authors. And if you have a business problem, you're probably now downloading that book and starting to read it as I preach. <laughs> I'm with you, okay? There's lots more that we could highlight as symptoms, but let's hurry to the end, okay? Oh. Come with me to Genesis chapter 1. 
let me ask you a question. When does your day start? 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m.? Sun's up, you hear the birds, the dog barking, kids crying for Pop-Tarts, iPhones dinging with texts, emails to be checked, your body's craving caffeine. When does it start? Now, listen, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a statement, verse 2. Now, the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. But the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water, and God said, verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, so God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night. There was evening, and there was morning, marking the first day. Oh, when does your day start? When does a Western day start? Sunrise to sunset. When does a Hebrew day start? Sunset to sunset. The way God made it was that our day starts in the evening. Here's a Hebrew principle. Whatever is first is more important. So what's more important for a Hebrew? Rest. What's more important for a Westerner? Work. And in so moving this design, we distort the design of God and the design of our bodies and our minds and our souls, and we walk offbeat to the design of God. And what is more important to a Hebrew? Rest. We are guilty about. Why? Because we most meet God in the present, but if we do not value rest, we rush, we hurry to the next thing, and we miss the present where God is. So God, knowing how we will quickly make work more important than rest, and in doing, we will make doing more important than being, God did something. Exodus 20, on the screens. Remember the Sabbath day to set it apart as holy. Or you could go to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, verse 21. Uh, even in the busy season of harvest, the Israelites were commanded to leave the harvest and have a day off. Rest in your most busy season. Your busy season of farming, your busy season of selling, your busy season of teaching, your busy season of filing taxes, your busy seasons of buying and coaching, your busy season of raising kids, of juggling jobs, of family and in-laws. Even when you are most busy, still take one day every week to stop and rest. Now, open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, verse 32. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Wilderness, cold at night, need to have a fire. 
Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to the whole community. They put him in custody because there was no clear instruction about what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. The whole community must stone him with stones outside the camp. So the whole community took him outside the camp and stoned him to death death, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Like, is God fuzzy on this command? Thirty-five times, thirty-five times God mentions the idea of doing no work but taking a Sabbath rest. I get the idea that God is not messing around with the Sabbath. Uh, I love this guy's name, Shmully Botich. <laughs> hey, Shmully. <laughs> he was a former rabbi of Oxford University, okay? And he said these words, Sabbath is a 24-hour period when there is nothing urgent. It's a 24-hour period when you realize your cell phone has an off button, when your office has a lock, when your lawnmower has an off switch, when your washing machine has an off button, when your vacuum has an off button. I didn't even know it had an on button, okay? When your credit card does not work on days beginning with S-U-N, when you have a sign hanging over your head which says, I'm not available. Like my teenagers always have, I'm not in, but like at Sabbath you say, I'm not available. What day, what day do you have to remind yourself that your worth does not come from your work, does not come from your grades, does not come from how clean your home is? Sabbath is a day when we are busy being, which is far better than being busy doing. One writer put it well when he said, you, you know what my problem is, and it's probably your problem. I'm probably more impressed with what I do, my work, than God is. The Sabbath helps us reorient our lives back into the right order. God is more impressive than we are. And the, and the Sabbath helps us see that our friends and our colleagues, ourselves, are more than what we do. What day of the week do you not do anything to remind yourself that the world is not sustained by you, but that God made it? And if I want to know a life of intention, I must begin to live my life in the rhythm that God set and saved my soul because for six days of the week, I feed my soul the myth that it's healthy, it's vitality, it's life comes from what I do, from how busy I am. And on a Sabbath, I need to tame that idol. Another writer says, Sabbath is God's way of saying, Blow some things off in my name, I'll cover you. Sabbath is a day when we are busy being, not doing. 
Sabbath is a day that says, I am way more than what I do. The Sabbath helps us tame the idol of busyness. I don't do the Sabbath well. But I'm trying to learn how to do it better. And this idol is one that I fight constantly. But I have made a deep commitment in my soul that I will not be a train wreck on the idol of busyness. So I'm not here for the next six weeks, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> At the beach. <laughs> but what are you going to do? That you're not consumed by who or what you do, but that your soul flourish, flourishes in who God made you be. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, we just ask you to help us. I don't think there's anybody standing to their feet, God, who isn't sucked into busyness, the sense of importance. Forgive us. And help us, Lord, by your Spirit. Find ways to rest. Find ways to realize that we are not what we do. We are more than that. Help us find times to meet you in the present and stop hurrying and rushing. And Lord, I know many in this congregation have multiple jobs as they handle and spin with multiple commitments. But even in the midst of that, God, I pray that you would help them find moments to slow down and rest. Come and help us with this real battle. May Satan not win. May you be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Go and have a slow week. And I'll see you next Sunday.